Hey, uh, we are back. This show that you've learned to love and watch grow, Fashion Is Your Business, is rebranding soon. We will have an expanded focus beyond fashion and with new hosts, Alicia Lanzo, Simeon Siegel, along with myself, Puff and Ball. You know, I've been thinking about how the landscape of brand and innovation has evolved tremendously since first launching. We'll focus now more broadly on how innovative brands develop direct engagement and successful relationships with their customers. I hope you enjoyed the new vibe. And starting September, this show will officially rebrand as Direct to Community Podcast, presented by Bellweather Culture. This is Direct to Community Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Pub and Balm. On this show, you'll hear how leaders, innovators, and investors building today's most innovative product brands drive value, experience, and connect meaningfully with their customers. Welcome everyone back to another episode of Direct to Community. I'm one of your hosts, Pavan Ball, and I am joined by none other than Alicia Lanzo. What is going on? Nothing much. Happy to be here. Excellent. And Simeon, as always, looking beautiful. What's up, bud? <laughs> How are you holding? All good. All good. The market less so, but all good. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Tell us all about it. Um, and so today we're excited to bring you uh, Tim Ringle. You and I have gone back to your days, of course, being the former global CEO of Spring Studios. And now uh, we're here to talk about your new agency, really exciting approach and very unique approach, which is called Meet the People. How are you doing? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm good. Nice to see you guys. Yeah, of course. Listen, we're going to start as we like to do here is instead of me reading off a bio of who you are and what you've done, maybe uh, doing that for yourself. So why don't you, in your own words, tell us who you are and what you are all about professionally. Amazing. How much time do you have? Um, yeah, we got about so, 31 minutes. Here. I'm kidding. Whatever, I'm kidding. Whatever I'm you want kidding. to do with that. Obviously, you asked me to be here because of my advertising career slash entrepreneurial experience but i have really two halves of my brains one is very much in the venture capital space where i do a lot of uh, early stage late stage venture capital stuff with uh, my own venture capital fund my family office so i invest into a lot of companies and i'm always kind of invested in above like more than like 50 companies at the same time that i sometimes help as a board member sometimes just help as an advisor sometimes just help with capital and my operational job or my own business that I run operationally is called Meet the People. It's uh, basically an international agency group. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. But I started my career in advertising 25 years ago back in my native Germany. Started a business there with two people in the basement. Sold it when it was 150 people 12 years later. And then did a reverse takeover of the company that acquired my company and scaled that to a thousand people that was a listed company in beautiful Paris, all in the digital advertising space, really on the back of Google, Facebook, today called Matter, and many of the other tech platforms growing dramatically during that time between 98 when I started my first company to today. And today these platforms are TikTok and Amazon and you name it, Snapchat. So the work has stayed the same. The platforms have changed and new platforms have immersed, but it's kind of still the same thing. How do brands break it in the digital world, D2C, when it comes to either B2B businesses or B2C businesses? So how do you get in touch with consumers directly? And how do you tell your story in an ever-changing world that's dominated by tech platforms? And after I sold that business with a thousand people, I then moved to New York, where I am right now, went on the dark side of the force going to large corporate 
and worked with an interpublic group of companies inheriting a digital agency there with 800 people and left it after three years with 3,000 people and 70 offices around the globe. That was super interesting. Learned a ton about traditional advertising, TVCs, TV advertising, radio, and all this kind of stuff. Went out of IPG because it wasn't entrepreneurial enough for me. Moved over to Spring Studios, bought myself a piece of Spring Studios that I stayed during the pandemic with the vision to build a creative agency into a full-service digital agency that lives in the lifestyle, aspirational beauty and luxury space. That was really interesting. And that's, I think, where we had a lot of interaction path, but also realized that uh, partial ownership is not full ownership and decided to then really raise capital to build my own next big business. And that's what I've done with Meet the People. I raised $150 million from private equity and I'm acquiring cool agencies around the globe, put them together keep the brands alive, keep the DNA alive, keep the people there and create a community approach that kind of competes with the traditional holding companies, if you would say so. And from a service perspective, we do A to Z. We really start with creative design through production, content creation, destination creation, experiential, digital marketing, analytics data, the whole shebang, basically. I got to point out one thing that's really cool. The primary metric you've mentioned was the amount of people. So you mentioned one number of how much you raised, but every other instance, you measured your companies based on how many people. We don't hear that very often. That's a cool approach. <laughs> it is because the advertising industry at large functions with very basic mathematic metrics. Depending where you start your company, where you operate globally or regionally or locally, um, the metrics, just basically the per head revenue, changes based on which geographical jurisdiction you operate in. But once you have that jurisdiction down and you understand the metrics, it's all about the people because it is a, it's people business. It's relationships, it's great capabilities, is basically superpowers within people that make you different. It's the numbers don't make you different. The people make you different. And once you have that down, you can build at scale. I mean, this is a perfect segue into, um, you know, the fabric of the conversation of this podcast is, uh, you know, essentially what role does community connect to brand and uh, understanding that brand, when most people think about it, they'll think about CPG. However, it can be anything. It could be tech platforms, it could be agencies, it could be brands uh, in the traditional sense of product. But again, what role does community connect to brand? At large, I mean, <laughs> I think the, the big change that I've seen in my 25 years was the principle of one to many to one to one. Right. So and I think CMOs make the mistake that they now think thanks to the te tech platforms, I can have a one on one conversation with a consumer and push my product. The reality is the decision making today is not done by the individual ad you know, distribute through TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Google. It is to a large extent driven by the opinion of the community because your algorithm on these platforms is also driven by what you love comes out of your community or what the algorithm curates for you based on the community you operate in, right? Your interests, your social demographics, like all the beautiful things that when we ran TV advertising, we had to pick. Today, the consumer picks that for themselves on the back of their behavior. We can argue about data privacy for hours, right? <laughs> and the tech platforms and around that. But the reality is the sentiment has changed. It has changed from a brand dictating what people should see to consumers dictating what brands should produce, right? And this is where fundamentally community is so incredibly important because community decides today if a brand, a product, a campaign is successful or not. 
that is a fundamental shift that I keep explaining to, to decision makers and companies. How do you decide? So when you're talking about whether it's part of the agency or your own brands, the beauty of community, community is both the definition of inclusivity and exclusivity at the same time. So the world is a community and a lot of times people chase the too big of an audience. So when you think about that, how do you hone that in? How do you pick your community? Well, it depends. This is not a simple answer because depending on who you are as a brand, how big you are, how much you want to disrupt an industry, there is a beauty in being Let's say, I don't want to say Coca-Cola because everybody uses that example, but let's say Pepsi, right? Because nobody talks about them. So it, there's a beauty in being Pepsi and not caring so much about addressing a tiny little pocket of community because that doesn't move the needle on how much product you're going to sell. You know what I mean? You have to do mass communication, but you have to do it now with more individualized messaging. But your communication strategy is still, you want to hit, I don't know, like, 300 million Americans, right, <laughs> in the end. But the way how you execute that looks very different. But if you're not a Pepsi, if you are a young brand, if you're a disruptor, if you, I don't know, let's say you are the next platform where you can get really cool limited sneakers and you want to really get into that community, you need very social first, very specific, very narrow audience segment to target to actually get any traction and then hope for viral organic content pickup. That's not really a strategy, but you know you have to be much more specific about who you're going to target because you can't disrupt, let's say, a Nike campaign, right? You're not going to be, you're not going to outshine Nike with just trying to have a mass approach. You have to be extremely specific in the audience, in the targeting, in the platform you pick to actually get some traction. I hope that answers the question. And Tim, you brought up a really good point about building community when you're, a, let's say, in a David Goliath scenario, the cool sneaker brand versus the Nike. How do you recommend for the viewers or listeners, I should say, how do you recommend they go about finding their tribe and how do they define it and how do they refine it and how can they engage with them when obviously they're looking to scale and their marketing budget to start is probably smaller? What have you learned and what kind of lessons can you bring to our audience? How do you recommend they go about finding their tribe and how do they define it and how do they refine it and how can they engage with them when obviously they're looking to scale and their marketing budget to start is probably smaller? What have you learned and what kind of lessons can you bring to our audience about how you think about community and building that audience and learning from them? I think the last, last sentence you said was the most important. How do you learn to find your community? Because... Again, it's not like with the power of social platforms and the power of endless data being harvested every day on behavior through the algorithms, you have infinite choice who you want to target technically, right? You can, I mean, you can segment by anything, zip code, social demographic, user behavior, what other things they like, lookalikes, like you name it, you know, you can make a PhD just in targeting and audiencing. So the reality that I face with most of my younger companies that I invest into is it's all try and error. It's hundreds of pieces of content pushed out in hundreds of different little audience campaigns. See what sticks, pick it up, and then amplify it. And once that wears out, you move on. So most of the young companies, they really struggle. And I'm talking a lot about digital here. We can talk about how experiential can play into that as well, right? But a lot of the young companies, they make the mistake that they 
<laughs> look at the custom acquisition cost as a metrics of, oh, this is my CAC and I have to reach this CAC and you know that's most important and we need more signups. The reality is to get to these metrics, you have to be ready to have hundreds of campaigns out there to constantly reinvent how you utilize the Facebook universe soon to be WhatsApp ads when they're coming, the whole TikTok universe, the whole Snapchat universe. Finding that tribe is extremely difficult. So it's either paid and organic. So that means, pardon my French, shitload of content, testing, 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 see what sticks, alter the test, try to do it better, increase, decrease your CAC, increase your conversion rate, and so on and so forth. Or you try to go through that with influencer marketing. The problem with influencer marketing is highly unpredictable if it works or not. The beauty of marrying both, you have paid campaigns out there, you understand what resonates with consumers, and then you hire the influencers slash or do influencer marketing on top of that in that specific subcategory of your audience. That I believe is extremely powerful, right? That's how you can find your tribe and then you have to amplify the tribe. The David and Goliath principle, some tactics they do work for small brands as well that you would consider being mass market tactics. As an example, I'm not going to name names or maybe I'm going to name names afterwards, but we just had this amazing campaign out for one of my startups that I'm invested in and I'm on the board. We hired uh, Charlie D'Amelio and her sister Dixie, 200 million TikTok followers, the two most followed people in the world on TikTok, to push a product and a collab out into the market. I'm I don't have the results yet because this was on Mother's Day, before Mother's Day into Mother's Day, but that tactic also works. 200 million followers, you kind of can calculate what the expected result should be from a revenue perspective, from a conversion rate perspective. You just need to be really well-funded to do that. <laughs> and then you can find your tribe, right? Yeah, yeah. and that's, a, that's another way to do it. But it sounds like that layering piece is really interesting because obviously... There's a lot of conversations going around like with all the iOS updates and everything happening and it's getting more expensive than ever to acquire customers and getting yourself in front of eyeballs. So like just thinking about what is the right one-two punch like you brought up around learning about your audiences, doing these you know fragmented efforts to learn quick, fail fast, and to scale up what works, but then layering those learnings on top of you know, other influencers, affiliate partners, whoever might be the right people to get the word of mouth out there virtually to get folks talking about it also in person. And never get lazy about it. Never get lazy about it because you think you found it and then there's one update somewhere within this super intransparent ecosystem and your ads don't resonate anymore. They don't work anymore. You don't get traction. The algo doesn't list you anymore for whatever reason. And then in my experience, it is a mix of having a really strong in-house person that really understands your product, your message, your content, your own content production person as well. It's very difficult for young companies to outsource that, in my opinion, because it has to be so authentic and on brand to really resonate. And then having agency partners who understand your industry and these platforms really well to help you amplify it because you can't do 200 pieces of content a day and test that with just two people within a small organization. And Tim, you brought up the Coca-Cola example, so you can probably resonate. My background, I come from the big CPG companies where we used to spend a lot on very big, beautiful campaigns with top models and top celebrities, you name it. But obviously that image that you put out there has changed. And we have a lot of conversations in a lot of the brands that I work with about I will, I'll try to bucket it for you. We say like the aspirational content, those folks that are living the life that most of us aspire to, but might never achieve. And then like 
targeting or including the real customers, especially performance-based marketing, those testimonials, those real folks. How do you think and approach this as somebody that's an expert in advertising content and campaign building? How do you think about that today and how to balance that image that you're creating? Well, it comes back to, again, what kind of brand you are, right? If you are a challenger brand, if you don't have challenger brands technically fall into the trap because of funding in many cases that they're going to focus on lower funnel, right? And that really is refine your content, go be close to conversion, try to, you know, harvest the customer lifetime cycle once they're, they did their first purchase. So I always advise young brands or young companies that, you know, are in C, second C, A rounds where you can't afford that celebrity endorsement kind of expensive upper funnel positioning, aspiration positioning work, I always advise them, get your lower funnel work really well done. Because once your lower funnel works, if you can't make, so sorry, this is like wisdom I'm sharing here. If you can't make search work or social, don't try to go out there with like large aspirational messaging. Because if that doesn't convert and your business model doesn't work against these conversion rates, you're doing something wrong. Once you hit that, then the aspirational positioning, upper funnel, activating channels that are traditionally less efficient from a customer acquisition cost perspective, conversion rate perspective, then you can make them work. But if you're trying to solve upper funnel without having solved lower funnel, only Coca-Cola can afford that because they don't get the data how many people walk into Walmart and actually pick up a six-pack, right? They just don't get that data within time to optimize quick enough. This is that stuff that most people look as that are not in this brand space and not running performance ad uh, campaigns as complete science. And I hear it and it's incredible. What I want to do is switch focus from brands that you've seen and campaigns that you've learned from throughout your tenure to meet the people and how you're approaching this space as an agency, as an ad agency. But what I've identified is, is radically different and transparent than what I've seen elsewhere. Right. In the beginning of the conversation, Thank you for that. You highlighted that I talk more about people than I talk about revenues and stuff. I do have to talk about revenues sometimes because, you know, my capital partners, my investors, they want to know <laughs> that I'm not only doing good for the good for the world, but also good for them. That's a different conversation. What are we trying to do different is when you, so again, there's different comparatives, right? So let's talk about the large holding companies first, the WPPs, Publitzes, Omnicoms, IPGs, Havas, Accenture, you name it. Listen, guys, I have love for everybody in the industry, right? Because these constructs are built with a certain purpose and they were built with a certain purpose. The problem is they were built 60 years ago, right? And the purpose they support today is primarily being financial institutions. Like they're most of the time run by financial engineers and they're most of the time structured in a way to maximize financial success because they're listed in a stock exchange and they're 60 years old and that's the story they tell. So the inefficiency that these companies bring with them is specifically the financial optimization of the structure, meaning you have 100 brands in a WPP or in an IPG or something like that, and each of them operate in a silo when it comes to their P&L. So they, when they win a client and a client thinks, I'm going to get the best from all of this network because they're all amazing, the reality is it's patched together, but everybody goes back into their own P&L and nobody gets anything for it. And that was something that upset me the most sitting on that side where I would pitch for incredible clients 
and we would tell them, you're going to get the best people. I had all intentions of giving them the best people, but the reality is I couldn't because they are financially engineered in a way where you weren't really incentivized to share business. And they're trying to solve that, but these are companies with 65, 100,000 people. Changing that is just not necessarily their nature. So that's one competitive set. How can we differentiate towards them? Is very simple, actually. <laughs> You're very client-centric. You build your structure around the client rather than around your own infrastructure. It's kind of like, do I build a company around my opinion or do I build a company around the client need, right? So that's a very simple solve for us. So whatever company joins Meet the People, and right now we have four companies within the network, I aim to acquire another three to four agencies before end of this year. So that's going to be eight then. Whatever agency joins us doesn't give up their brand, doesn't give up their DNA, doesn't give up their people, but we operate as a singular PL because everybody in the organization is incentivized against the success of the overall rather than the success of the individual PL. And this is kind of how we want to disrupt the legacy, I would say, holding company agency model. We're not the only people who do that. There is a couple of these groups out there who are a little older than us. They are some of them better funded some of them differently structured. But I think the difference that we bring to the table competing with this competitive set is that we are actual agency operators. We have built companies, all of us, we have built companies over the last 20 years in all size, shapes, scales, smells, tastes uh, within the industry. We know exactly how the industry works, how the capabilities work. We know a ton of people in the industry. So we are not kind of removed architects. We are in the weed operators and entrepreneurs and that's also the companies we're looking for people who still have a lot of how do you say gas in the tank to really make a difference in the industry and the third one is the people centricity acknowledging finally acknowledging that an agency is nothing else than walking assets the fact that all of us including myself i can get a job somewhere else tomorrow doesn't really matter the, the industry has a 25 to 30 percent attrition or churn um, in a good year, in a normal year. <laughs> during the pandemic and now during the talent crunch, it was even higher for many companies. So the reality is the only asset of a service business is really the intelligence, the capability, and the talent within the organization. And the reason why clients come to agencies is because of that talent. And sometimes the brand gravitas, but primarily it's the talent. So for us to build a people-centric organization where you can work from anywhere, get hired from everywhere, where no matter which agency you work in, you can use the infrastructure of the next agency as well. Let's say you move to Denver because of personal reasons. We have an office there. It doesn't matter which brand you wear. You're welcome within that infrastructure. You're going to be part of that community, right? These things sound obvious and simple. The reality is our competitors sit on 25-year leases, you know, of dramatically like a ton of real estate in Manhattan or San Francisco. They need people to be back in office. Otherwise, they have to explain to their shareholders that they have to write off these leases, right? We don't have all that. It's like in every industry, if you have the opportunity to have a greenfield approach, you're going to be a disruptor. We're trying to do it with the, I would say, with the ambition to be extremely people-centric and client-centric, especially in a time now where Work has changed during the pandemic and going to be changing so much in the next couple of years. Hey, y'all, I just finished reading through the July 29th Indicator newsletter by The Lead. And in 60 seconds or less, here are the headlines that I thought were most notable. 
Live stream platform Whatnot raises $260 million, led by DST Global for a valuation of $3.7 billion with a B dollars. B2B one-click checkout platform Balance raises $56 million. Walmart, with health and wellness hospitality company Getaway, launches small general stores at select travel outposts across the country. Glossier will go full omni-channel in 2023 with a Sephora partnership, breaking away from its D2C-only playbook and launching in-stores across the U.S. and Canada on Sephora's website and on the Sephora app. Eddie Bauer launches a resale arm of its re-adventure rental program with help from ThreadUp and Loopedworks. Saks Off-Fifth is teaming up with Rent the Runway to sell pre-owned designer fashion at greatly discounted prices, a move to attract younger, trend-driven luxury consumers to its stores. You can dive into these articles plus more by subscribing to the Leeds newsletter at the-lead.co. How are you approaching your customer set? So, you know, being people-centric and working with uh, really just interesting companies and people, are you thinking about external community, like as your customers as a community as well? Like, if so, how are you approaching that? Yeah, when I wrote the first kind of manifest of what I wanted to build, I used the word villages. We're not there yet because we are nine months in, it's baby, like we're really in baby stage, not even toddler stage right now, When I, if I compare it to that, right? But the first word I used was villages. Like, I would like for our clients and our freelancers and really our consultants, whoever works on a project or a client or campaign to really be part of our community. So, and initially I had this vision that our offices would feel like a co-working space branded as meet the people, but because of the pandemic right now, we haven't been able to go down that route. But I think maybe, Alisa, you, you know this from the client perspective, but I think what clients really want is they want to work with their agencies hand in hand on a daily basis. And in many cases, they want to get out of the cubicle they have, they have forced into. They want to be in a creative environment where they can whiteboard the shit out of an idea or something like that. And that is the approach I, I'm going to take once, <laughs> once people want to be back in the office. And we're going to allow our clients to be part of that. How much weight do you put into like experiential marketing? So in the sense that from an agency part, right? Like, uh, how are you kind of leveraging in person in order to build those relationships. I mean, a lot of this stuff gets done over dinners and those sorts of handshake back rooms. So. Absolutely. So we are back, definitely back. I mean, the U.S. has been has been back in person for a while now, for a couple of weeks and months from my perspective. So just to make an example. From your New York perspective, not your Florida perspective. Not, well, that never changed, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but even in Denver, like uh, we have the offices back open. We had, we have around 80 to 90 people in Denver and 45 were in the office when I was there last week. So incredible. I loved it. The spirit, the energy, the creativity was great. So we are definitely back in person when it comes to experiential networking, you know, walking the halls, again, sitting in client offices, discussing projects, strategies with them. That part of life has come back. But people are obviously, for all the right and maybe also wrong reasons, reluctant to commit to full-time back into office, right? And that's fine. We have no problem with hybrid work. But what I wanted to mention is experiential is a really important part of my business. Like we have an experiential agency being part of the Meet the People group called Public Label. And to make an example, their biggest client is Moet Hennessy. LVMH, basically champagnes and liquor brands and all. I think we work for 12 brands and they're going to deliver 5,000 experiential events this year. 
for that client across the United States. So experiential is back, definitely. And in-person is back. And for brands not to accept that, realize that and harvest that when everybody has so much pent up demand is a mistake. <laughs> well, Pavan has their whole library right behind him there. So the listeners won't be able to see and appreciate how many bottles are there. But... <laughs> yes, I'm checking which brands these are. Otherwise, I have to cut this short, you know. <laughs> I'm also debating whether this was a pandemic hobby or problem. <laughs> Maybe a bit of both. How do you think about what's interesting? I, we hear about ROAS and, and all different forms of measuring. You know who never really talks about that? And we've talked about this before on other, on other shows. The big brands, right? The big brands from their perspective are much less attenuated towards the incremental dollar that's being spent because they still have that. So like, as you think about all the DTC, the digitally natives, all the emerging ones that they're, everything is focused on specific marketing campaigns, but there's a lot more units being driven at scale for larger brands that maybe have less of a focus. What do you think there? I disagree. I disagree Great. because you technically, so if you go back to the bare bones simplicity of advertising for large brands, and I think you have a Coke there right now. So, <laughs> good example. I haven't, uh, I haven't had a Coke in a long time. This is a, this is a lacrosse. Oh, it's Again, not. I'm, it's I'm, a, a little, I'm a little bit behind the times. I don't have the latest one, but it's still water. Oh, okay. That much healthier, much healthier. <laughs> good choice. So, if you simplify it, there's three buckets of money out there. There's the branding bucket. There's the performance bucket. And there is the, as I call it, the co-op bucket, right? The branding bucket, nobody talks about ROI. Nobody talks about like how many people walked, how much footfall did this drive because it is aspirational brand positioning. That always was the main KPI and metrics here. As I said, a lot of young brands can't afford that. That's why this bucket hardly exists, right? They're trying to solve that. It's programmatic, some smart pre-rolls on YouTube, maybe some Twitch, and that's aspirational brand positioning. Compared to what large brands, the Goliath do, it's nothing, right? Compared to small brands can't compare with that. So that bucket of money is simply nearly inaccessible for smaller brands. Then you have the performance bucket, highly measured, over-optimized, very platform-centric. The biggest mistake that happens there is that people look at individual platform performance instead of cross-channel performance that actually going to inform your customer engagement funnel as well as the customer lifetime cycle. So that is highly over-optimized compared to a brand bucket where there's hardly any optimization when it comes to performance. The performance bucket is highly over-optimized. And then that's the funniest part. You have what I call the core bucket. You walk into Walmart, into a physical aisle, and there is an ice cream brand that has plastered the aisle to make sure that ice cream is going to go into your basket when you check out at King Cullen, Walmart, whatever it is, right? That co-op money today is hardly measured as well. It's by far not as transparent as performance marketing at large. And that bucket is as big, if not bigger, as the performance bucket and as the branding bucket. So what I was saying about the core bucket really is that this the core bucket is as big, if not bigger, than the performance marketing bucket, and in many cases, bigger than the brand bucket as well. So we're talking about billions of dollars that go into a completely unmeasured. And is this the stuff where it's like placement, end cap placement versus like height placement, where like, you know, the, the fruit loops are eye level with the kids and those types of things, or? Right, that's some part of that. But uh, what I wanted to say is we relate to co-op marketing in a physical aisle, right? We understand, okay, I get it. You want to have your Fruit Loops in Walmart, you're going to have to advertise for it. You're going to be part of the catalog that's lying around somewhere. You're going to have some aisle advertising. You're maybe going to have a banner or a better position within the aisle on like whatever eye level and whatnot. 
But we are talking about a digital shelf world now. Amazon is the biggest retailer in the world, if I discount China right now, right? So the, in the digital world, there is something like digital co-op money. There's a digital shelf. This money is what Google and Facebook, what they're all going after and hasn't really cracked yet. So this is an incredible opportunity because co-op money has never been able to be measured efficiently because the supermarkets kept control or whatever outlet it is, Delhi, supermarket, whatever, it was very difficult to track the sales in real time because of different cash-out systems and you name it, and also the interest to have control over the CPGs who want to place their products there, right? So now with the digital shelf, the tide is turning. It's fully measurable. It's even bigger than the physical experience in many cases already. And thanks to the pandemic, nobody is scared to buy stuff online anymore. So the core bucket is the next big bucket. And Tim, I love that you said this. I spent part of my career in shopper marketing. So you are, you are speaking to my soul. And there's a couple things happening on that front. And I want to give you the platform again to just elaborate on it because I think some folks totally get it that are hearing this right now, and some folks will learn a bit more about how important this bucket is and how it can make or break a brand. And so I'm thinking about the evolution of my career. And when you think about, it used to be called either customer or shopper marketing, and those were the folks that were a mix of sales and marketing experts that knew how to activate the physical brick and mortar channels. Then with digital becoming more important and that digital shelf space or your e-com site, whether you're, let's say, a big store like Walmart where you have a walmart.com and then you have your physical locations or your Amazon and you're driving people to an online site to show them your digital shelf. But I'd like to elaborate and get your thoughts as an expert on more about like, how do you think about, obviously that's evolved quickly, right? Because those original marketing and sales folks don't necessarily have the skill set to know what to do about the digital side of it. And the agencies that knew how to support them on those big mass media campaigns don't really have a lot of value to bring to that particular core bucket. So sounds like another big point of difference, Tim, that you have over others. So congratulations on identifying that. That really resonates with me. But I'd love to learn more about what do you think of now in the future when it comes to this omni-channel, let's say, shopper market or customer marketing experience, whether you're trying to build on Amazon or you're building on, let's say, a Walmart or so that are really have an omni-channel experience? Like, how do you think about that for a brand? Or how do you, obviously, every brand is different and has a different approach. But if you could give us some, some big learnings and lessons or some future predictions on how to think about that, I think that's a really critical piece for brands. I'm going to try. So thank you for supporting my strategy here because we did acquire a shopper in retail marketing agency in Canada and in the United States because when I was at IPG I did an analysis of what is the next bucket because again sharing uh, war wounds here right I wasn't allowed to touch brand I was in performance so I wasn't allowed to even scratch on the brand bucket so I decided let me go for the core bucket but before I go for the core bucket uh, let me understand why these people don't talk to each other internally within the CPGs, but also within the agencies. Why is there separate agencies doing this when we overmeasure performance and not measure brand? What is the problem? And we realize very different decision makers, completely removed from marketing departments, completely removed from digital departments. And I have to say, average age, 15 years older than the others, right? So, and very relationship driven. You were the person who knew everybody at Walmart. You are the person who must makes the deal at Walmart. Same for Kroger, same for the others. So that's why we consciously decided besides buying a creative agency, design agency, performance marketing, digital agency, we also bought shopper and retail marketing agencies because I want to harvest that bucket. And 
to your question, want to create an integrated story. If you don't get the data from the physical and digital point of sale, how do you going to create the next campaign that resonates on the upper funnel or the middle of the funnel or the lower funnel? But it needs different skills. And you, you know this because if you have ever seen a team writing an in-aisle ad, <laughs> Good luck. A, a senior, an ECD would basically jump out of the window. Right, because it's a call to action, it's price driven, it feels like e-com performance marketing, but it is not digital, and therefore it is really weird. Yeah. <laughs> because you can have a model with a price and a call to action, like grab that ice cream now, standing in an aisle, right, <laughs> made out of made out of paper. <laughs> so bringing these skills together is exactly the secret sauce. So my vision is. While I have a creative person thinking about how should this brand position itself in the future, let's say Moe or Ford or Google or IBM are companies we work for, how does that live in the aisle, in the digital aisle, in performance marketing? And how do we get the data to basically inform the creative process to get the right content out? And Tim, you brought up a good point too, because if you think about trends come from consumer and cultural trends, capital markets, et cetera, and everybody was all D2C only. And then when they needed to get to reach customers where they are, right, and to open up additional channels and to let some of that control go, this is where, to your point, you're very futuristic. And congratulations on hitting on, a, I think, a big win here in terms of your strategy is that it really opens you up because what these guys are going to have to do to grow is think about either partnerships with Amazon, physical retail locations, et cetera, and how do you bring together that holistic strategy that can work in a seamless way where you can bring the old and the new world together to meet customers where they are physically or online. Listen, Tim would be able to, to get into the to this strategy forever. Unfortunately, we are up on time and uh, I would love to give you the opportunity to first talk a little bit about who you're looking to connect with these days. Of course, you mentioned that you're looking to acquire another three to four agencies. That's obviously top of mind being that you're nine months in and you're growing pretty quickly from what it sounds like from a, from a people standpoint. Tim, I want to give you the opportunity to let our audience know who you're looking to connect with these days. What's the best way to follow you and your project and the journey with uh, Meet the People? Yeah. So we definitely always looking for entrepreneurs who want to join our group, right? We have no problem of finding agencies or agencies reaching out to us and being interested to become part of us. But I'm looking really for the gems, the people who really want to build something together, who see there is an opportunity to disrupt this industry and bring the puzzle pieces together that have been lying around fragmented and isolated for so many years. I mean, the US alone has 14,000 independent agencies. That's just the US. We're not talking Canada. We're not talking Europe. We're not talking Asia. So there is a massive opportunity there. So that's number one. Number two is rockstar talent. Like, as I said, it's all about the people. If we don't find rockstar talent, you know, how do I tie the pieces together? So we are always are looking for people. We have right now, I think, 45 to 60 open roles throughout our organization. And it's going to grow because, as I said, we're going to acquire at least another three agencies before end of this year that we already have in the pipe. And last but not least, you know, having great people and having great ideas really only work when you can test it on clients, not test it, sorry, but actually use it on clients. But this industry is all about testing stuff. Nobody has the blueprint of making a brand successful anymore, right? So we are also obviously looking for clients as well. So if you want to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn, Tim Ringle. I'm on Twitter, not using Twitter so much, but let's see what Elon does with that. And then, I mean, email me, tim at meet the people.com 
or just look us up. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time over here today, Tim. Such an, an absolute pleasure. It's always great to have you on mic, always delivering a ton of value. So thank, <laughs> thank you. you so much uh, for being with us. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. It's cool being here again. And just call me again whenever you want to hear something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening in on this uh, episode. And thank you for listening in on Tim. If you want to hear more from him again, you already have that contact details. So for Alicia Lanzo. See you guys later. Thank you. And for Simeon Siegel. Great. Always great to be here. Catch you next time. For myself, Pumball, I'll see you soon. Hey, y'all, one more thing. The opinions and views expressed on this show are those of the guests and the hosts and not necessarily shared by Mouth Media Network, Bellwether Culture, or their partners. Thank you to DJ Uzo of Uzo Media and nrvld.co for providing our music signature.